0: Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. There's a comment over here that uh, my, uh, my baby is here today, and today happens to be her 20th birthday, <laughs> um, which, by the way, she was born on my mother's 70th birthday, so today is also my mother's 90th birthday. And somebody did ask the question, is this the one that drug me into all the plays? And the answer is yes. Huh? (laughs) You just kept dragging. Last week I was gone. I was off on a silent retreat for three days, so I didn't talk. That's kind of weird. Oh, well. Uh, We are working our way through chapter 12 of the book of Mark. If life were really good today, we would finish off chapter 12 and we'd make it all the way through chapter 13. As if that's going to happen. But we'll try. Remember, Jesus has entered Jerusalem and... Most of chapter 12 and the end part of chapter 11 was the conflict between Jesus and the various religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians. They all showed up to try to put Jesus into his place. What we're going to see in chapter 14 is they're finally just going to try to figure out how to kill him. We've got to get rid of this guy because he's getting in the way of our power and influence over the people. So in the last lesson we did, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he actually gives the answer that the person asking the question wants to hear. And Jesus tells the guy, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And we are told at that point, the Bible says, they stopped asking him questions. It's like, we're not going to trap this guy. We're not going to get him into some situation where he's going to get in trouble. He's going to answer all of our questions. Let's just stop. And as I said, in chapter 14, we're going to see that they decide they need to kill him. And when I say chapter 14, that's like the next day. Okay? So, we have a little bit more of chapter 12 to finish off. And we'll start in verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. So, probably the stairs in front of the temple, he's sitting there teaching. Whoever shows up gets to hear. In fact, it says in a couple of verses that, uh, and the great throng heard him gladly. They liked listening to him talk. Remember, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not as all the other people who had been teaching. They recognized in his voice that he spoke differently. He had a different message than all the scribes, the Pharisees, and the others who had been doing the teaching. So... Jesus taught in the temple. He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, We understand that Jesus is a descendant of David. The question is not, is he a descendant of David? The question is more along the lines, is he only a descendant of David? Is he just another heir to the throne? Is he just another, well, human king? And the expectation was, yeah. The Messiah was going to come. The Messiah was going to come and probably kick out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. Life was going to be good. The Jews were going to be at the top of the pecking order. Israel was going to be a mighty nation again. That was the expectation. And Jesus says, how can he be merely, only a descendant of David when he says, this. And this is taken from Psalm 110, and it is interesting because it's one of the most quoted of the Old Testament passages in the New Testament. What's also interesting is this whole idea of the word Lord that is quoted here. By the time it gets to Greek, there's only one word for Lord. In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, though, The first Lord is one word and the second Lord is a different word, but both applying to God. So the question is, why does David say, my Lord, when he's a descendant of David, yet he is acknowledging the fact that he is God? How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? that is only, merely, the son of David. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, that Lord is Yahweh, Jehovah God, the creator of all things, said to my Lord, which is Adonai, which is also God, sit at my right hand. So this is God telling God to sit at his right hand. This is God the Father telling God the Son, who is the Christ, who in the flesh is a descendant of David, but is in fact deity himself. So, what Jesus is trying to present to them is that the Messiah, Christ, Him, <clears throat> is in fact the Son of God. He is not merely. Another human being, another human ruler, along I mean, in the middle of a long line of human rulers. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? David himself said, this is my Lord. Once again, what did it say? In the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David acknowledged the fact that this Descendant, the Messiah, is God. And the great throng heard him gladly. Edith's comment is, she's surprised they understood. Well, I'm not sure they totally understood. You see, you can listen to a guy... And you know he's speaking the truth, but you're not sure you understand what that truth is. Do you see the distinction? Okay. I think they knew, well, he wasn't just another teacher. Okay. And in his teaching, verse 38, he said, Beware of the scribes. The scribes would be teachers of the law. They could be Pharisees. They could be something else. They are the teachers of the law. And Jesus begins by saying, watch out for them. Now, what we're going to see in the next two little vignettes is really a contrast between two different people or groups of people. One of them is going to be the religious leaders, and one of them is going to be the poor woman who gives, well, everything to the temple. And Jesus is going to contrast these two groups, the first a group and the second an individual. Beware of the scribes who who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What are these guys doing? Okay, I am the religious leader. And I go out into the marketplace and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, you great religious leader. You're the greatest guy in the world. And I'm just sitting there going, come on, do some more of that. I've got this crowd of people and I want them to know that I am the greatest there is. I've got my really nice robe. I look the part of the religious leader. I go out into the community and I want people to acknowledge who I am. I want them to know how important I am. And Jesus says, watch out for them. We saw in a parable at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus told them that they, their responsibility was to deliver to God fruit. They were to take care of the nation of Israel. They were to teach them the word of God. They were to produce fruit so that when the son of the owner returned in the parable, they could say, Here. But instead, they beat up the servants that came before. And when the son, the Messiah, finally shows up, they just kill him, thinking that if they kill him, then they will receive all the inheritance. If we get rid of the Messiah, we can be in charge. And we really like being in charge. And Jesus says, watch out for them. These are the people who make a show of being religious. They want to be known for their piety. This is, if you will, the definition of a hypocrite. This is what Jesus says elsewhere. They are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, a nice coat of paint looks really good on the outside. Inwardly, There's nothing but death. And Jesus says, watch out for them. They want the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast. I show up at the feast. I'm not just going to take any old seat. I want the seat that's a demonstration of my place in society. Come up here. Let me give you the best seat in the house. And that's what they want. Everything that Jesus in his earthly life wasn't is what they wanted to be. They devour widows' houses. They're collecting, well, we're going to see this in just a second. And, for, and they make a pretense for making long prayers. You don't want to ask one of these people to bless the food at the beginning of a meal. Or the food's going to be cold. Okay, because you give them the moment to speak and they start just waxing eloquently in their speech. I mean, hey, you can always sneak in an extra sermon, right? In the middle of your prayer, just saying. And it says they will receive the greater condemnation. Those who were put in a position of responsibility and authority, will be held to a higher standard when they do not fulfill their obligation. And he sat down opposite the treasury. We're still in the temple area, right? He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people put money into the offering box. There, as you walk in, there's this box, you know, you drop your, your coins in, you drop your paper money, you slide your credit card, whatever it is. You're putting money. Many rich people put in large sums. And you have the idea here that they put in large sums, and they wanted people to know they had put in large sums. You know, you walk up with the bucket of nickels, okay, not pennies, we don't want to be cheap, but we want to have a lot of coins, right? I want a bucket, and I want to be able to dump the bucket so everybody can hear the bucket going in. Rich people showed up making a show of how much money they put in. And a poor widow came and put in two small small copper coins which make a penny. In Normal business at the time, you would have had gold coins, very valuable. You would have had silver coins that were used for paying a day's laborer. You know, at the end of a day, you might get a small silver coin. That would have been your wages. For some people, they went to the trouble of pounding out cheaply made little copper coins because that's all they had. And it says she had two of these things, and she dropped them in. Now, I'm sure Jesus isn't the only person in this room at this time watching this going on. And you know, right? The guy comes up with the bucket full, dumps it in, everybody goes, wow, he's pretty good. Nobody, nobody Except Jesus noticed this woman dropping in her two coins. Nobody but Jesus. And he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them them, "Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I've got a million bucks in the bank. Just for the record, I don't. But I have a million bucks in the bank, and I slip a 20 into the offering plate. Now, there is nothing wrong with me having a million bucks in the bank and there's nothing wrong with me putting 20 into the offering plate. Okay. That's it. I mean, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong. God has given me and he has asked me to give back. Okay. Now I'd like to think that the slipping the 20 into the offering plate isn't the only thing I give, but that's a whole different discussion. I have an abundance, and out of my abundance, I'm giving something. This woman didn't give out of her abundance. She gave everything. Now, once again, there's nothing wrong with having a million bucks, and there's nothing wrong with slipping a 20. But when we start looking at people and judging them by how much they put into the offering plate. Now, it's kind of hard to do right now. We're not passing offering plates anymore. You've got to figure out some other way to make it known how much money you give. (laughs) Just saying. My mother actually does tell the story of when she was a child, and they'd pass around the offering plate, and the ushers passing the offering plate would say, Bob Jones just gave a hundred bucks. I don't know why they thought this didn't violate this, but they did it, okay? Do you know the name of the series of sermons that are being preached right now, Upside Down? The point of all of this is that you and I are impressed with the great teacher walking around in his flowery robes, who is giving the long prayers, who sits at the right seat, who knows the right people, who does the right stuff. Nobody knows what this woman did except Jesus, except God. And here's the question. Do you want the people to know? Or do you want God to know? That's the question. Remember that passage in the Sermon on the Mount? We'll get to it in this sermon series sometime. When you do your acts of righteousness, don't do it to be seen by people. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a pretty silly statement. I mean... Obviously, my I mean, we're connected, right? But he's pointing to the fact that we have a tendency to want to be seen doing. And sometimes we have to work to overcome that desire to be seen. If the only praying you do is in public you're doing it to be seen. If the only giving you do is in public, you're doing it to be seen. This woman did not give out of her abundance. She gave everything. And to God, that puts her at the top of the list. Now, we know, we know because we had a lesson on it, about the rich young ruler who came and what must I do and give up everything you have and give to the poor. And we talked at the time that that passage is not a command to each of us to sell everything we have. It was a command to him because God knew the condition of his heart. What God is interested in are the people who give him everything. That could be money, that could be time, that could be, a oh, wait, what was the lesson two weeks ago? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we had a long discussion because the question was asked, you know, don't I have to use a little bit of my strength to take the trash out? Yeah, you do. But whatever it is you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all out of reverence and awe of God that's what this lady was doing not like all the scribes chapter 13 we have 20 minutes I can just read it right and we'll be done And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, these guys should have been to the temple before, and probably were. You know, In theory, every good Jewish male was supposed to go to the temple once a year and present its sacrifice. But even the fact that they had done that, Most of them were still country bumpkins. Okay? This is the guy in the musical Oklahoma who goes to Kansas City and says they've gone about as far as they can go because they've got buildings that are three stories tall. (laughs) So these guys are walking around Jerusalem, that is an impressive place, and they're looking at the temple and they're going, Wow, this is great. Now, as an aside, I still believe they had some aspirations to ruling part of this. You know, the Messiah has showed up, we're on the side of the Messiah, we get to live here. Ha ha, we're going to be great. Isn't this a cool place? It's a perfectly natural response. I mean, you go to some beautiful building, and this temple was a beautiful building. Just for the record, so you know... So you remember, this is what is referred to as the second temple. Solomon built a temple, and it was destroyed when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. When the Jews who had been carried off into captivity returned, they rebuilt the temple. Okay? Wasn't that impressive? Herod came along and really wanted to impress the people. Herod built a lot of stuff. So he rebuilt the temple to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people. But since the sacrifices had not stopped from the temple that was built when they returned from captivity, it was all considered the same temple even though it was massively rebuilt. So this is still the second temple. And it was an impressive structure. If anything, it was more impressive externally than Solomon's temple had been. This was a cool building. If you had been there, you would have said, this is neat. And they turned to Jesus and say, isn't this a cool building? And Jesus' remarks shocked them. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. St. Augustine wrote a book entitled The City of God. The reason he wrote this book is that in 410, the city of Rome itself was destroyed. It was sacked. It was pillaged. It was destroyed. And by that time, Christianity had become connected to the Roman Empire, and there were those who were convinced, Rome, Christianity, we're all going to go. We're going to take over the world. Life is going to be good. And St. Augustine made the comment, there is the city of man. This is all these nice buildings. If you drive around today, you'll see big, nice buildings. You'll see nice highways. You'll see nice stuff. That's the city of man. All of that's going to be destroyed. But the city of God will remain forever. When Jesus told the disciples, you see these stones? It's all going to be torn down. In their minds, they're thinking, that's the end of the world. How can this be? How can Judaism, how can the belief in the Messiah continue if all of these stones have been torn down? Where are we going to live? And it really starts them thinking. You see, you and I are used to buildings being built, used, and torn down. Okay, we're just used to that. I mean, I remember when the Rangers were playing in the last stadium, and I remember when the Rangers were playing in the stadium before that. So when my son says they're building a new stadium, I'm going, why? (laughs) Because it's going to be better. We're used to that. These people aren't used to this. This temple is where God is. And you're telling us they're going to tear the stones down piece by piece by piece. You know that's got them thinking. You know it's got them worried. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James, and John, and Andrew, ask him privately, hey, Jesus, we got a question. This isn't the group. This isn't sitting on the stairs in front of the temple talking about the scribe. This is four of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, what? Tell us, when will these things be And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Number one, when is it going to happen? And number two, how will we know when it's going to happen? Now, it is interesting because even here, the disciples are confused. In fact, if you read the question in Matthew, it actually says... When are these things going to happen? When are these events going to I mean, what What are the signs of the event? And what is the sign of the end of time, the end of the ages, the end of everything? Jesus has just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. And they are convinced that is the end of the world. But what Jesus is going to tell them, and what many, many years later we're going to see in the book of Revelation, is those two things are not the same thing. The temple itself is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans are going to finally have enough of the Jews revolting. They're going to go in and they're going to wipe them out, and the order is going to be given to pull down all these stones. And today, if you go to Jerusalem, the only thing that's left of the temple is the temple mount, the actual flooring of the temple. And one of those walls that you can see is the Wailing Wall. The Jews honor that because that's all that's left of the original temple. Well, the original one or the second one. It's all going to be torn down. And to the disciples, their understanding is all of this is going to happen simultaneously. So, Jesus is going to answer their question, sort of. And it's that sort of that I want to make sure you understand. And to do that, I'm going to jump to the end of the lesson, and next week we'll go back and teach the lesson, okay? The end of the lesson is the answer to the first question is I don't know. What is the first question? When are these things going to happen? Since this time in history, people have tried to guess what that day is. I've read their books. It's going to happen on Thursday, trust me. <laughs> I've read these books. Verse 32, and yes, we are going to go back to the rest of it, okay? Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, (gasps) nor the sun. What Jesus is telling the disciples is, I don't know. Isn't he God? Yes. Isn't God all-knowing? Yes. Yes. But we've had discussions before that Jesus, when he took on humanity, did not lose his divine attributes. He simply set them aside to only be used when God the Father told him to. He was still all-powerful. When God says, take care of the storm, he speaks and the storm stops. When God says, heal this person, that person is healed. When God says, feed 5,000 people, 5,000 people are fed. He has the attributes under the control of the Father. In his humanity, he limited himself. And Jesus is telling them, the angels don't know. I mean, you know the imagery, right? God is sitting in heaven today with Jesus on his right hand. And this is a picture in our minds that by the very nature of it is confused because it's a human picture. But go with me. He is sitting on his throne. There's angels all around, we're told in the book of Revelation, saying, you know, holy, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, worshiping him. And at some point, God's going to say, now. And let me let you in on a little secret. When God says now, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. But you and I don't know when. You and I do not know when. The angels in heaven don't know when. It is a matter of the providence of God. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, because of that, be on guard. Keep awake. What I would like us to look at in this whole chapter, once again, next week's lesson, today's lesson, is the commands that God gives us because of the truth that he's telling the disciples. If you look through this, we see that it says, don't be led astray. Twice he tells them that. Here he tells them, be on guard and keep awake. Okay, you and I can only stay awake for a certain amount of time. In my younger days, I used to think that I could miss one night's sleep and still function. Today, no way. Okay? We have to sleep. So why does he tell us to keep awake? Well, this isn't physical awake. This is spiritually awake. You see, we have a tendency to just kind of drift off chasing after something else. Chasing after the things of this world. And when the second coming occurs, we are neither on guard nor are we awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, that is the morning, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be ready for the return of Christ. We actually talked about this about three weeks ago, or at least we hinted at it. Remember the parable We just talked about it. The parable that Jesus used to illustrate the responsibility of the Jewish leadership to produce fruit on the land that God had given them, the master had given them. So that when I return, you will be able to give me what is my due. And we saw in the parable that they didn't do that. They beat up the servants, they killed the servants, and when the son came, they killed him too. They were not prepared for the coming of the Messiah. We see people in the New Testament who were ready for the coming of the Messiah, but the Jewish leadership was not ready. In the same way, he's telling us, be ready. Now, you and I are sitting here thinking those religious leaders were crazy. Here the Messiah is walking around and they're not accepting him. They'd been waiting 400 years for this Messiah to show up. They had fallen asleep. We've been waiting almost 2,000 years for this and guess what? A lot of us have fallen asleep. We no longer have the expectation. We just figure, I'll enjoy the life that God has given me. So, that's the conclusion of the lesson. Let's back up a little bit and get a little bit into this before we stop for the day. Tell us then, what will the sign will these things be and what will the sign when all of these things are to be accomplished and jesus began to say to them see that no one leads you astray let's just stop right there see that no one leads you astray jesus is going to talk about the destruction but he's primarily going to talk about his return that's where he ends before the passage I just read a while ago. And what he's warning them is don't be deceived because there are going to be those who claim to be me. We'll keep reading and get to this. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. There's going to be people who say, I'm Jesus returned. And he says, don't believe them. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be a subtle event. Jesus, when he came the first time, was born in a manger in the middle of nowhere, in a part of the country that nobody cared about and to a woman of no importance, to a guy of no importance, and you can begin to understand why they didn't really think that, well, was he? I don't know. Was he the best? I don't know. You can at least excuse them a little bit. Now, after his miraculous life and the miracles that he performed and the teachings that he gave, you might ought to have had a second thought. When Jesus comes the second time, there's not going to be that initial debate. If I want you to think that I'm the Messiah and I have to prove to you through some sleight of hand or something that I'm the Messiah, I am not Jesus returning. Jesus returning is going to be an undeniable event. It's going to be Fireworks in the sky, the sky opening up, and here he comes. There's not going to be any discussion about, well, I wonder if that's it. It'll be obvious. So his first instruction is, don't be deceived. Why would they be deceived? And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are only the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard... For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious. That's another command, by the way. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." and brother will deliver brother unto death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, I am a disciple of Jesus. I mean, I'm one of the apostles. I've acknowledged the fact that he is the Messiah, I have expectations that the Messiah is going to take over Jerusalem. We're going to have a great time. We're going to be in charge. We, the apostles, get into an argument about who gets to sit on the right hand of the throne and the left hand, but we all know it's a throne. And Jesus says, You know what? There's going to be wars. Not more of those. I thought you were going to stop that. There'll be famine, there'll be earthquakes. There will be persecution. Now, when all of these bad things are happening, what are you going to want? You're going to want Jesus to return. Why do we want Jesus to return? Because we know this world is messed up. Wouldn't you just love it if I didn't even finish this lesson? It's not that good of a lesson. Wouldn't it be better if Jesus just showed up right now and we wouldn't have to have elections in November? We wouldn't have to talk about COVID one more time. We wouldn't have to worry about whether the Russians are going to invade Ukraine. We wouldn't have to worry about the Olympics. We wouldn't have to... Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus says, you're going to see a lot of bad stuff. And when that bad stuff happens, somebody's going to sneak over and say, I'm the Messiah. Come with me and all this will be taken care of. And you're going to say, oh, I really want it all to be taken care of. I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, don't be deceived. All this bad stuff does not mean that God is not in control. Don't be deceived. All this bad stuff doesn't mean that God's plan is not going to be fulfilled. Don't be deceived. We'll pick this up next week and have more discussion about this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son is going to return. I pray, Lord, that you would he- help each of us to be awake, to not be deceived, and to not be anxious. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.